Let me elaborate. Uh, before I get started with the message today, let me elaborate on the announcement that Jeremy gave us relative to tonight's canceled service. We intend, uh, as we go into the new year within the next two weeks, our task force will begin to work and meet and uh, begin to kind of map out for us something of the vision path that we will follow. The vision is there, but we need to uh, be very diligent and intentional as we move forward. And so, not tonight, but next Sunday night, we will have a special service that will be a prayer service for that group of people as we go forward. And tonight we have many people who are out of town, many of our staff are out of town, and so we have pushed that off till next week, okay? So, again, even though it says in the bulletin we're meeting tonight, we're not meeting tonight, nor are we meeting Wednesday night, I think, as is custom. So, with that in mind, take your Bibles and go to the book of Luke chapter 2. I started off a few weeks ago now, a month or so ago, talking about the hectic season. And at least by your presence here, it looks like most of you survived that. Uh, So we come to the end of the hectic season, and I have one last entry into our series as we have discussed what's right with Christmas. And today, I want to talk a little bit as we begin about the aftermath of Christmas. How about two or three o'clock in the afternoon? Several years ago, uh, Teresa and I were, had a house in Beaumont, Texas, and we decided that it would be a good year because we were fairly centrally located with the rest of our kids, with the exception of the one in South Texas. And so we invited everybody to our house for Christmas. And so my parents were able to come and uh, all three of my kids, and we had one granddaughter at that time, and they all came to our house. And in that house, we had a a kind of a living area that was sunken, and then we also had a formal living room that also was a bit sunken from the stuff around it. And so we decided that the smaller, more formal living room was the place for us to do the Christmas damage with all of the gifts and all of that. And I mean, they were packed, you know, stacked behind the tree and around the tree. There was uh, about nine of us there plus a five-year-old, or she was not five at the time, but a young preschooler, and there were just way too many presents for that many people. And so we went through the process. By the way, there was also a a tree in there and a piano and couches and all that kind of stuff. It was just crowded. And so then we started into the madness of unwrapping all of those gifts. And I don't know how you do it in your family. Most families have a tradition, you know, the, the sane families tend to go with, okay, one person opens one and then you just kind of go around the room. That's, we're not sane. Our family's way past being sane. And so at the word go, everybody just started digging into the packages. Um, and it was loud. And it was loud. <clears throat> and it was chaos. And paper was flying and gifts were, you know, being appreciated or people were disappointed over what they unwrapped or whatever it happened to be. But when it was all said and done, 15 minutes later, we had stacks of boxes and we, in that sunken living room, it looked like it was not sunken anymore because there was gift wrap shreds all across there. And at one point I remember looking down and seeing my granddaughter down underneath a lot of those and she'd pop her head up through the wrappings every once in a while. The aftermath of Christmas. It's really not just about the mess that's made and the 
trash that's left over. What, this is a little more of a serious observation I've made through the years. That we do all of the hype that's our Christmas Eve, but what happens after the presents are unwrapped? My observation has been, at least with our family unit, is that about two or three hours after all of the stuff has been unwrapped, there is this sigh. Kind of a general family sigh. Now what? It's an interesting psychological observation, I think, and some of you armchair psychologists out there might watch for this next year. But I think there's a spiritual psychology to it as well. A spiritual reality that points to this tendency that we have that when the, the tasks of Christmas are behind us, there is this kind of a general malaise almost that sets in because now all of the energy that has been feeding for at least a month has been expended and the event is over. I didn't want us to get off of what's right with Christmas until we deal with this little issue for us because the reality is that many people on this day, less than a week after Christmas, we're just glad that it's over, some of us. And we're ready to get on with life and we're ready to get on with other things and yeah, we still have to get through this thing called New Year's and all of the resolution stuff, but, but I want us to kind of ask together this question, what is the effect of Christmas? When it's all said and done with all of the celebrations and all of the family gatherings and all of the food and all of the Christmas programs and all of those things that we do, now what after Christmas? So in Luke chapter 2, we step into what I believe is, I hate to tell you what I'm going to do this morning, but let me just go ahead and let the cat out of the bag, all right? By the way, I don't know who came up with that word, that little phrase, cat out of the bag, but I sure would have liked to have been there when they thought about it the first time. <laughs> Let me just tell you, I want to do a little bit of doctrine this morning with you. I, I don't usually tell people up front because people start going to sleep immediately. They think doctrine is a boring kind of a thing. But as we go into a new year, as we come to consider what's right with Christmas, I want us to pause long enough to make sure that we put together some of what Christmas does for us, the coming of Christ. And we talk a lot about salvation and that as we should when we talk about Christmas. But there is a lingering effect that impacts our lives today because of Christmas. And especially when we add the whole crucifixion event and the ascension of Jesus. So join with me as we look here at, at one big benefit of Christ's coming and then some implications that we draw from that. We are in Luke chapter 2. I'm actually going to pick up in the middle of a paragraph here. But well, actually, let's just go back to verse 22. We read these words from Luke 22. Uh, two. Oh, boy. Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they, that is Mary and Joseph, brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
what we find in those verses essentially is that Mary and Joseph are following the religious liturgy, if you will, the religious standards that they have been given as to what they're supposed to do with this newborn son of theirs. Verse 25. Now, there was a man, this is the guy who gathers our attention this morning. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, that is Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his mother, excuse me, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here's the big truth that we draw from this. You're never alone. Now that's a better word than you may think for those of us who never feel like we're alone or those of us who seem to thrive in a crowd. We don't think too much about being alone, but the reality is that many in our world feel desperately alone. And if you're here today and you're one of those who feels desperately alone, there is hope. Take heart. Notice in verse 25, this, as we begin to look at this guy named Simeon, we don't really have much to work with. Now, tradition, as tradition tends to do, has attached a lot of things to Simeon and said, well, this is who he was and this is what he did and this is what happened in his life. And the reality is we just don't know those things. Tradition tends to like to fill in blank spaces with stuff that sounds good. And in this case, we just really don't know much other than what we find here. And in verse 25, the first part of it, here's what we find. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. I'll come to the rest of that verse in a few moments. But here's what we know. Some would say that he was a priest, and that's why he was at the, at the temple there. That's probably conjecture more than anything else. Whether he's a priest or not, we're not sure. But this we do know, he was a prophet. We know he's a prophet because of what he says to us, what is recorded by Luke in this particular case. And the thing that I really want us to drill down on this morning is that what we know about Simeon is that the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's the last part of verse 25. Now we should pause for a moment and do a little bit of backward look, make sure that we put this in perspective. Because Simeon stands at this juncture, at this this uh, link spot between two epochs of the way God has dealt with man. As we go to the Old Testament, we find there that the Holy Spirit is present in the Old Testament. We would expect that. But we also find that the Holy Spirit tends to deal with people in the Old Testament by, by this kind of an intermittent visiting. 
And so we find this phrase on a regular basis, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. If you were to go, you don't have time, but in Numbers 24, 2, and when it's talking about Balaam, who was actually a prophet from another place, and he was doing what, there's the talking donkey story with Balaam. And so you can go back in Numbers 24 and read it, and it says this, Numbers 24, 2, and the Spirit of God came upon him. That's, that's a picture of what we find often in the Old Testament. When God wanted to deal with somebody, often we would find it said, saying that the Holy Spirit came upon this person, and then the picture is that when that event was over, then the Holy Spirit would be retracted away. That's the Old Testament doctrine, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. But after Simeon, and better said after Jesus, we find a different promise. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you? You might want to kind of hover around that a little bit and think through some of that because towards the end of the story of Jesus in his earthly life, he leaves them. But does he really leave them? If we jump forward into Luke's second volume of his recorded history of the early church, after his first volume, which is the Gospel of Luke, his second volume is the Acts of the early church. And we find early in the book of Acts this account of the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's at the day of Pentecost, and you can go back and read that on your own time. But what we find there is Jesus fulfilling what he had promised to his disciples, and that is that I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Holy Spirit comes, and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as we know it today is that the Holy Spirit indwells us as people who have chosen to be followers of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament picture is the Holy Spirit would come down and a task would be done and then he would pull back. But in the New Testament, as we find after Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and he indwells God's people. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, we need to be careful here because sometimes we fall into a practical tritheism. Sorry, there's a $4 word for you today. Sometimes we fall into this practical perspective that we separate Jesus and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and we make them, in our minds at least, we say, well, they're one, Trinity, right? But practically, we start dealing with them as if they're three different little gods or big gods, whatever your perspective is. The reality is, one God, three persons... And so Jesus and the Holy Spirit, Jesus comes, the Holy Spirit comes after him. I know this because we find Jesus himself in John chapter 14 making this promise. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Remember that passage? But in that John chapter 14 through 17, Jesus pauses with his disciples and he makes this promise. I'm going to go away, but I have to go away so that the other one, another comforter can come. The another there means one just like me of the exact same kind as me. And he's promising the coming of the Holy Spirit who is with us. So we talk about Jesus Emmanuel at Christmas time, God with us. And that other person in the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, is Emmanuel, God with us from that point forward. It's a big truth. It follows through. What? Just go back to Jesus and his disciples with me. Jesus was 
the teacher. And the way that he taught those disciples was he walked around with them. It's a particular kind of teaching that the rabbis practiced a lot in first century Judaism. And Jesus walked around and his disciples went with him. And in that walking around, Jesus took life and he taught his disciples spiritual truth attached to that. For instance, he told many parables. Now, beginning next week, I'm going to start a series in here where we look at the parables of Jesus. But I'll just say to you, and also I'll say, so I will say, much more about that next week. But for today, I will say Jesus, as he walked and taught his disciples, took real life things, and he said, here's spiritual truth for you from that. And it transformed them. The Holy Spirit fills that function for us today, as we'll see in just a few moments. Jesus was not only their teacher, he was also their rescuer. And so we go to those pictures that we have in the Gospels of Jesus and, or his disciples in this particular case as they're out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee and they're freaking out, these professional sailors are, because things are not going their way and they might just not make it through. And this Jesus who is present with them, they wake him up and they say, don't you even care that we're going to die? And Jesus, not now the teacher, but Jesus now the rescuer, speaks across the bow of that boat into that storm and says, be muzzled. And there was immediate peace and there was comfort for them. Jesus, the present one with his disciples, the teacher, the rescuer, and ultimately the comforter. And I take you back to John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus was present with his disciples and it transformed their lives. One of the things that's right about Christmas is it brought the presence of God into this earth in a way that man had never seen before. And then after his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, it opened the door for the Holy Spirit to come. No longer as with Simeon where he visited him and then was not there. Now the Holy Spirit indwells us. That's a huge truth. The presence of God himself indwelling you doesn't make you God. I I know that many of us on any given day like to believe that it makes us God. He's still God. But the promise that he gives us is Emmanuel, God with us, the benefit of Christmas and Pentecost is the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. You are never alone. That's important because we'll find times in life where we're going to feel awfully alone. Here's some implications for that. In the time we have left, let's hit a couple of them. There's actually four implications. I'm sure I won't have time for all of them. So let's just take them as they come in this passage. Verse 26 gives us the first implication of the Holy Spirit being with us and that we are never alone. And because the Holy Spirit is with us, we have cause for hope. It is easy for us to overlook overlook this verse, verse 26, but let's don't overlook it. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. You see, that grows out of verse 25, where it talks about Simeon and what he was doing. Uh, Excuse me a second. 
So with that in mind, let's look at this as we find the Holy Spirit and what it does for us. Simeon, as we find in this passage, was looking for the consolation for Israel. This is that point of reference that the Jews of the first century had because they were living under Roman occupation. The consolation of Israel was that reminder that God had promised them. The the promise was that he would send a Messiah, one who would come and restore Israel to its greatness. Well, at least that's the way they perceived it. And this Messiah would be the one who would come in and restore the glory days of the kingdom, days of David and part of the days of Solomon, where it was a united kingdom and God had blessed them and their reach and their power was wide-reaching, wide-spanning. And into that had come disobedience. And into that had come their choices to walk away from God. And so God began through history to discipline his children. Ultimately, the northern kingdom goes away and the southern kingdom goes off into exile and then they're brought back and then by the time we come to the first century, the Romans are occupying them again. They were a group of people, children, who had wandered away. But there was that set of people like Simeon who were waiting for the comfort, the consolation that God would bring to them and restore them back to their rightful place as God's chosen ones. The consolation of Israel, the coming of the Messiah. For first century Jews and for many of us, desperate situations lead to exasperation. And ultimately it opens the door for hopelessness. I don't know if you're familiar, I'm sure you've at least heard the news stories, but back in August of 2000, there was a Russian nuclear-class submarine called the Kursk, K-U-R-S-K in English. And this particular submarine was um, in the midst of some Russian war games as they were trying to make sure that they could hold off the American fleet if it came to a battle on the seas. And this particular submarine, the Kursk, was, um, was loaded with a number of powerful torpedoes and missiles. And according to uh, the accounts that we have of that, that submarine experienced an explosion underwater. And then a couple of minutes later, a much larger explosion. And the Kursk sank to the bottom of the seabed at about 325 feet As the divers later went to try to salvage that submarine, they found as they were removing the bodies of all of the sailors who were there who hadn't been destroyed in the explosions, they found this note that was on the person of the body of Lieutenant Captain Dmitry Kolsnikov. Here's what he said. At 13.15, using military time, All personnel from compartments 6, 7, and 8 are moved to the ninth compartment. There are 23 of us here. We have made this decision as a result of the accident. None of us can get out. In fact, none of them did get out. What we find with that note in his pocket on his dead body 
was that there was this time frame that survivors of that series of accidents had where they were still alive, and yet they were hopeless when it came to thinking about rescue. I would submit to you that in this post-Christmas letdown season, that our world and probably your circles are populated with people that are marked by hopelessness. Maybe their financial situation has taken them under. Maybe a loss in their life of someone they loved is just too much for them to get past. Our world is marked by hopelessness. And look what God had done for Simeon in verse 26. And that had been, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Isn't it amazing what a little bit of good news can do in the face of hopelessness? How about that stock market? I don't mind telling you, I was really pleased. One day this week, I think it was this week, my time frame has sure been messed up over the last three weeks, but wasn't it this week when we got the report that the stock market closed over a thousand points up? That's pretty good when we thought that it was just going to keep going down and down and down. A little bit of good news goes a long way for us when it comes to how we live our lives. And here's what I want you to get from this particular passage. Israel was in a terrible time. It was a time where they were hoping that maybe God might remember them and restore them. But the Holy Spirit, the one who indwells us, had communicated with this guy named Simeon that gave him a point of hope. You will not die until you see God's anointed one, the Messiah. That's great if you're Simeon. What about you? Where do you need hope today? What is the life situation that you face that if you get right down to it, you sense that maybe it's kind of hopeless? What might God have to say to you about that? Here's the good news of this. You're not alone, and God is still on his throne, and there's hope. That takes me to the next implication. I'll close with this one. Not only do you have hope because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you also have direction. I don't know how you are about New Year's resolutions. It's always interesting for me to even bring it up in a conversation because people go to two poles almost immediately. On one side, there are those people who say, well, here are my goals and my plans, my New Year's resolutions. And another set of people go, I don't make those things. The reason I don't make them is because I know I'm going to break them. And so I made a resolution years ago. I'm not going to do those anymore. And so they don't. And that's all fine and well and good. But I would encourage you at least to plan as you look into your future. Whether it's a New Year's resolution or not, you need to plan ahead. Otherwise, you're going to be at the mercy of the circumstances of your life. So as you plan ahead, how do you know where to go? Now, in my wife's vehicle, there is this installed program that is a navigation system, as I like to call it, how to get to the wrong place in the right path. 
It's an amazing thing because I can take my phone where I also have one of those navigation systems and I can say, okay, so how do I need to get to this particular place? Or I can use the one in my wife's car. I had to do this several weeks ago. They had a pastor's Christmas uh, function and they asked me to speak at that. And so it was way out in Horizon City. I'd never been to this particular church before. As a matter of fact, the only time I'd been to Horizon City was driving through it going east. And so I punched into the car, I need to get to this particular church in Horizon City, and it took me almost an hour to get there because it took me in the most traffic-prone part of the entire Borderlands region, I'm sure. Seven million cars and one blinking red light. Now, if I had used my phone instead, it would have shown me that there was a quicker way to go. I just got on the freeway to come home, and it was a lot faster doing it that way. GPS navigation systems are great when you don't know where you're supposed to go, or better said, how to get to where you're supposed to go. But GPS navigation systems are terrible with helping you decide the proper destination. If you have the destination, you can enter that, and that GPS system will get you where you're trying to go. Now, it might be through a traffic-prone area. It might be around the mountain instead of over it. Uh, It may be any number of things. It can get you where you tell it you're trying to go. But if you don't know where you're trying to go, that thing's not going to be any good to you at all. Those of you who have Alexa at home or Siri on your phone, ask them, where should I go with my life? I don't know what they'll tell you, so I should have given you that disclaimer on the front end of it all. Life is full of uncertainties for us, and some of those have to do with where we need to go in life. A number of years ago, I was, well, I was pastoring a church, and that particular church, we were at the end of a planning cycle. Um, and we had accomplished the things that we were trying to do. It had been about a three-year plan. And it was time for us to dream a new dream there, to figure out where God was wanting us to go as a church. And so I was praying through that on a regular basis. also had, uh, at home, I had a college student and two high school students, one of whom was about to graduate. And so I knew that as a family, we were going through some transition times. And frankly, I just wasn't really sure about where we needed to be going in those days. And it became, because I was praying about it and wasn't getting an answer, it became a bit of a struggle for me. And I had that year, I had determined that I was going to take the year and study through the book of Isaiah in a devotional way. Not to preach or teach, but in a devotional way. I'm going to, I'm going to work through this, past, uh, this book. And so on that particular day of consequence, I was in Isaiah chapter 30. And I was thinking about as I went into that time, what are we going to do and what's the vision for the church needs to be and all of that stuff. And, and I just wasn't sure. And I came to this passage where the prophet records this. It says in uh, Isaiah 30, verse 19, for a people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. See, the prophet had been talking to them about God's discipline on them for abandoning him. And you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious gracious to you at the sound of your cry. 
And as soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher, that's a capital T, and yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. And in that moment, that particular word from the Lord reminded me of the benefit that we have as children of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells within us that he gives us the direction we need, not just for how to get to where we think we want to go, but helping us to know the destination that he has designed for us. So if you're here today, and you're wandering through life and you're kicking your way through and checking this door and that door, trying to figure out where you fit. The Holy Spirit of God, God himself, who knows all, has made the offer to you that you can know the best place in life to go because he reveals it to you. Your teacher says to you, as he whispers over your shoulder, this is the path. Go here. This passage where Simeon models for us the Holy Spirit and what he brings to our existence. We know that he says to us in no uncertain terms, you are never alone as he indwells us, his people. That brings us hope where there seems to be no hope. That brings us direction where we need direction. It also brings us stuff that we'll see that other people might miss. That's verse 28. It also helps us make a lasting impression on people. That's verse 33. But at the end of the day, at the end of the Christmas season, the impact of Christmas is that God came in the flesh and never has it been the same again for people who know Jesus Christ. Because the Holy Spirit indwells you and guides you through life. Is that true for you this morning? Do you know this Jesus? Is he present with you? Have you experienced the indwelling Holy Spirit as he gives you the resource you need to make your way through life in a way that honors him and fulfills you? If you don't, you can And we extend the invitation to each of you that you might know this Jesus, that you might accept the gift that he has given to you, which is eternal life. But the benefit or one of the benefits of that is that he promises his presence with you forever. If you don't know him, today's the day. And this invitation time that we're about to have is for you. And we invite you to come and let's have the conversation to introduce you to Jesus Christ. Let me ask you to bow your heads, if you will, as we go into invitation time. Also would like to say, if you are here and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're facing things in the coming year that might have you a little bit off balance and a little bit concerned, if you're in the process of making New Year's resolutions instead of just doing what seems right to you, why don't you take the truth of this passage and apply it into your daily life. And so, Father, as we come to this time of decision, we pray that you would move among us. 
that the decisions that need to be made today, whatever they are, that you in your spirit would have your way with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to stand, if you will, and sing. Invitation time is for you. Whatever.